Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abazites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that it was her strength that saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one will not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lack the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Margaret, very much indeed. Uh, A very good morning to you. Let me add my welcome to that of Jay's earlier. Uh, Before I pray, uh, let me just uh, mention two things that I hope fell out on you as you open your service sheet this morning. Uh, The first is this little card, uh, which reminds us that next week is a guest service 
Uh, do be praying for the Holiday Club this week. Uh, we've got a great program, uh, over 40 kids coming. But next Sunday is a guest service, uh, which is not just for the kids, it's also for the adults. Uh, Wally will be preaching to us and will be launching, in a way, Christianity Explored there. So uh, if you have a friend for whom that might be good, uh, do use this card to invite them. The other thing that should have fallen out on you is uh, this little thing about two ways to live. This is a great little course to help us uh, know the gospel better and be equipped to share it with our friends. I've written a weekly word on it, uh, but if you're not in a small group and would like to take part in that, please do fill in the, uh, the tear-off slip, uh, tear it off, put it in the, in the buckets or the, the bags uh, later. Well, with that said, uh, let's, um, I haven't preached for a long time. I hope it's uh, like riding a bike and you never forget. Uh, but let's ask the Lord for his help. Father God, thank you that you are a God who speaks. And so we pray, speak to us all this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we pick up again our little series in Judges, and we've got another bizarre story, haven't we? At first pass, we might wonder, what on earth is it about? Are we meant to uh, instruct our wardens, Pete and Logan, to go and buy a church fleece so we can find out what God's will is? Are we meant to make sure that next week uh, Lee teaches the kids how to drink like dogs? That way they'll be ready to serve the Lord. The stories in Judges are strange. It's because they're strange times. And if you've been with us as we've been through this series in Judges, you'll know uh, that there's a vicious cycle going on. The people of Israel have entered the promised land, but they failed to drive out the people who originally lived in the land. God's enemies, people who worshipped false idols. And as they fail to drive them out, uh, the people of Israel begin to worship the gods of these people. Well, in turn, the cycle spins and God gives the people over to uh, oppression from the people of the land. And we saw over the last few weeks, sometimes that oppression is for decades, longer than some people here have been alive. Uh, But in time, the people realize that they're in a terrible situation and they call out to God who raises up a a deliverer or a judge. And that deliverer or judge turns the people back to God and rescues them from their enemies. And for a period, there's peace in the land. But the cycle spins again and the people abandon God, go back to worshiping idols and he gives them up to oppression and so on and so forth. The The reason I'm saying that is that cycle, every time it spins the oppression gets worse. But so does the judge. Each judge looks more and more like the compromised people of Israel. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we were looking at Gideon. And uh, if, if you weren't here, can I commend to you Jeff's sermon from last week? It's, it's on the website. But in a word, Gideon is a wimp. Gideon is a wimp. We meet him uh, threshing his grain. He's got a perfectly good place to thresh his grain in public, but he does it in a wine press because he's frightened. And God calls Gideon and says to him, Gideon, you're going to be a mighty warrior. Through you, I'm going to rescue Israel. And the Lord tells him that three times. And three times Gideon tries to skulk away. He's scared. And eventually he, he plucks up the courage to obey the Lord. And you might remember last week, he goes down and chops down an altar. But we're told that he does it in the dead of night. He takes ten servants, he's frightened, and so he does it at night. Gideon is a wimp. But before we're too hard on Gideon, we need to think that, well, certainly I, am often a wimp. There are times 
when I know with my friends or others that I need to make it clear that I'm a Christian, that I don't think like that, and yet I'm scared. I, I, I'm tempted to keep quiet. Other times, I know what the Lord has told me, and I'm, I'm tempted to doubt it and not trust it. If Gideon is a wimp, then so am I. And quite possibly you too know something of that temptation. Well, the Lord's dealings with Gideon here are meant to give us confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, certainly not kind of confidence by looking at Gideon and thinking, well, I could do better than him. But no, we're supposed to see the Lord and trust him because he is with us and he does what he says. Do have a little look at verse 33. And we see that war is brewing. All the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other peoples joined forces and crossed over the river and camped in the valley of Jezreel. War is brewing. And so in verse 34, God clothes Israel, uh, sorry, clothes Gideon with his Holy Spirit. That is to say, God equips him with his power to uh, take on his enemies. And there's an instant transformation. I don't know much about music, but I do know if you're trying to hide, you don't blow a trumpet. And Gideon blows a trumpet, everyone knows exactly where he is, and his clan rush to him. And then Gideon sends out uh, messengers, and the tribes around send warriors too. And we're told in chapter 7 that 32,000 men have gathered. It's quite a considerable army. Gideon is no longer in hiding. But before the battle there are a couple of strange incidents, aren't they? And the first is this famous incident with the fleece. It's a famous incident, but one that I think is often misunderstood, and so we need to look carefully at what the scriptures are saying here. It's often assumed that that this is about guidance. You may have heard somebody say, kind of at a crossroads in their life, trying to work out, should they go this way or that? I'll put a fleece out, referencing this, this section. I'll put a fleece out to try and work out what God's will is. But notice that this isn't actually about guidance. This isn't Gideon trying to work out what he should do. He's trying to get confirmation. Is is God going to do what God has said he will do? God has told Gideon really clearly he's going to rescue Israel. Uh, And Gideon knows that, doesn't he? Look at verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised... He's got a clear word from the Lord, and the question is not, what should I do, but God, will you really do what you've said you'll do? And so Gideon sets up this test. If you'll do what you've promised, then give me a sign with the fleece. I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor, and if there is dew only on on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. I'll know that you do what you say. Well, Gideon puts his fleece out, he, gets, he goes to bed, he has his nightcap, and he wakes up early the next morning and goes to the fleece. And the ground all around it is perfectly dry. And he picks up the fleece, and it's sopping wet, so much so that he squeezes it into a bowl. Now, we need to be careful, don't we? When we read narrative, that is, when we read the stories in the Bible, just because somebody does something doesn't mean that it's commended, doesn't mean we're supposed to copy it. But equally, when somebody does something strange or weird, doesn't mean that necessarily it's wrong. Often the narrator of the story gives us some clues, but here the narrator says nothing, does he? But I think Gideon himself 
gives us clue uh, as to what is going on. He himself seems to know this isn't quite right. Look at the next little bit. He's, he's just asked for this confirmation, hasn't he? And God has graciously given uh, an answer through this test. And then Gideon says, verse 39, don't be angry with me. There's a sense he knows that it would be right or understandable for God to be angry with him. Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. And this word test should um, make a little red light flash, I think. Nowhere in the Bible, I, I think I'm right in saying, is this word used positively of God. In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, I think we're probably supposed to recall some of the incidents in Exodus and Deuteronomy where Israel tests God. In particular, in Exodus 17, where the people of Israel are in the desert and there's no water and they grumble and test God. And this word is used a number of times there. And the thing that Israel says is very similar to Gideon's. Is the Lord among us or not? Will the Lord do as he said or not? And Israel tests him and Gideon tests him. And it's not right. Well, a second time, God gives Gideon the confirmation he asked for. The next morning, he goes out, and this time the ground is wet, but the fleece is perfectly dry. Well, what are we to make of this? I think that, first of all, we're meant to see Gideon as a kind of mirror. That as we look at Gideon, we see ourselves. Now, there's many ways that that isn't true. We aren't the spirit-enabled saviour of God's people. And thank God for that. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? But we are God's people filled with his Holy Spirit, given clear promises, and yet so often we doubt them. We know that we shouldn't. We know that that, that kind of doubting quite possibly is, is frustrating to the Lord. And yet we still, like Gideon, find it hard to take him at his word. Uh, the Bible is very clear, isn't it? If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. And yet so many of us go around with, with consciences weighed down. Has he really forgiven my sin? We know that the Bible says that God loves to hear his people pray. He answers those prayers. And yet so often we, we think, does he really? Surely it's not worth the time. We know that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And yet when it comes to an opportunity to speak of Jesus, so often... We, we keep quiet and think, is it, is it really worth it? The gospel seems so pathetic. We are like Gideon, and I think Gideon models us as something good. He doesn't pretend that he's got no doubts. He takes them to God, and he's frank and honest with God. Now, I don't think our passage here really commends Gideon for that, but the rest of the Bible does Think of some of the Psalms where the people of God are commended, are modelled. When you doubt, when there's a problem, take it to God. Cry out. Be angry with God. Don't grumble to each other. Don't doubt to each other. Take it to God. But I think the question is, how do we do that? Is Gideon kind of modelling to us, uh, putting God to the test? Should we put out these little fleeces? Maybe you're struggling with, um, uh, am I really forgiven? Well, well, it could be that you think, well, Lord, I, I feel that I'm not forgiven. And so if I am really forgiven, why don't you um, 
bring somebody along today to encourage me, and then I'll know that I'm forgiven. Or, or maybe you think, I just can't quite believe that the Lord answers prayer. So Lord, today, answer a prayer, anything, for, for a car park. Give me a very visible sign today, and then I'll know. Now, of course, God can do that. God often does do that. And yet, I don't think Gideon is encouraging us to do that. Not least because he never promises to answer in that way. Sometimes putting a fleece out can look like a very faithful, a very kind of spiritual way to live the Christian life. But actually, I think in some ways it's the opposite. Imagine if Gideon went out that morning and the Jew was everywhere. It was on the fleece, it was on the ground. Well, what would Gideon have thought? God's not with me. But what would still be true? The promise of God. I will save you. I will save Israel through you. Imagine if we pray, Lord, I don't feel that I'm forgiven. Give me a sign of that today. Somebody come and encourage me today to know that I'm forgiven. And nobody does. But what is still true? The word of God that says, if you put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven, whatever you feel. And so rather than test God with signs, I think Gideon is modeling to us, kind of by his actions and then his, uh, by his words that speak truer than his actions, that we are to come to God, but we're to listen to his word. And we don't put these tests out, but we come to the Bible. And we read these promises. And we pray, Lord, I, I, I doubt convince me of the truth of your word and as we read the promises we we see first of all that what god has said to us is true we need to check that what we think is a promise really is a promise from from the bible but then when we see it's true we believe it and we pray lord help me to believe it and the more we read the scriptures and see that god is trustworthy he's a god who cannot lie as we look at the way he deals with gideon utterly truthful and faithful we're enabled to trust Well, Gideon, I don't think, is a model to copy. Gideon's own words make it clear that, if anything, he's modelling unbelief rather than faith. And yet notice what God does. Even though Gideon is testing God, God is gracious and kind to Gideon. I think if somebody came to me and said, I've tested God a few times and he's given me a positive answer, I'm going to test him again, I think I'd say, you fool, stop messing about. That's not what Gideon does, is it? Sorry, that's not what God does. He's kind. Now, we mustn't presume upon that. He's kind, and so we'll, we'll test him. But he is kind. And God knows that we find it hard to trust his word. His word is trustworthy, but we find it hard to trust. And so, very kindly, God has given us some signs. And God has promised to give us signs under certain circumstances. And friends, I'm really pleased that actually this morning God is going to give us a sign. It's a sign far more exciting and gracious uh, than a fleece. Now, we're used to it, and we forget how profound it is, but in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, God makes his promise, his his audible promise, his his verbal promise, tangible. Let me... um, read some words from an old confession that that, that are a little bit wordy, but they make this clear. Uh, The confession says this, We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, that's our immaturity and weakness, 
has ordained sacraments, the Lord's Supper and, the, uh, and baptism, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promise in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace towards us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. And listen to this bit particularly. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses what he enables us to understand by his word. Do you see what that's saying? Everything we need to know is in this book. But God knows that we're weak. God knows we long to see things and touch things. That's why we sometimes like physical idols, isn't it? God knows we long to see and touch things. And so for the sake of our weakness, he's given us these visible signs. And friends, this morning, if you're feeling weak, if you're doubting, is God with me, then come to this table. This table is not for people whose faith is strong. It's for those who know their faith is weak. And as we take that bread, we remember the greatest promise, that God is with us, that through Christ our sins are washed away. And we don't just hear that, we see it as the bread is broken. We we taste it as we taste the wine and the bread. And God reassures and reminds us that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. So don't test him. Not because he's got a big stick and he'll beat you up if you do, but because we don't need to. We don't need to test him, but rather we can trust him because what he says is true and will come to pass. Well, that's the first thing. Secondly, very briefly, don't tremble. We don't need to tremble because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Don't tremble because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Well, after the incident with the fleece, there's another strange incident before the battle. And Gideon leads his men up to a a spring called Harod. And tactically, it's quite a smart place to to be. He's above his enemy, and, and there's water, and there's provisions. But theologically, it's quite interesting. Harod means trembling. He's at the spring of trembling. And you can imagine Gideon's army trembling as they look down, and in the valley are 135,000 men, we're told in chapter 8. And you can imagine Gideon's army trembling. And I'm sure they tremble even more as they hear the words of verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into into their hands. Why? Because there's a danger that Israel may boast against the Lord that our own strength has delivered them. Do you see the problem? Israel is outnumbered, four to one. And if God gives them a victory, the danger is they'll pat themselves on the back and say, we are so good, how victorious we are, how, how, how powerful we are, and forget that God gave them the victory. Which is kind of ironic, isn't it? They're a motley crew with, with a pretty pathetic leader, and yet they'll pat themselves on the back. It's sometimes said, isn't it, that the self-made man, the self-made woman, worships their creator, and the same is true of us, isn't it? We, we should remember that everything we have is from the Lord's, all of our wealth, our riches, our salvation. And yet so quickly we pat ourselves on the back and think, well done me. Well, to prevent this problem, God is going to reduce Gideon's army. So he tells them, verse 3, anyone in the in spring of trembling who trembles is to go home. And 22,000 men go home. And imagine Gideon may well have wanted to join them. But it's still fairly impressive, isn't it? 10,000 men. So the Lord says, uh, there's still too many, so take them down to the river. 
And God sets up this kind of uh, dog drinking challenge. And it is fairly extraordinary, isn't it? Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Gideon, go and work out who in your army drinks like a dog. And then send the others home. Now, if you look at the commentaries here, they come up with all kinds of ingenious reasons for why God sets this test. I think we learn from that more about the commentators than we do about uh, Judges chapter 7. I think we're meant to be controlled by verse 2. Why is God doing this? Because he wants a small number. I don't know much about the SAS, but I'm pretty sure that in the SAS selection and recruitment uh, requirements, there is not a dog drinking challenge. They, they don't make them run around and then assess at the end how well they drink like dogs. This is not a kind of proxy for fighting prowess. The point is, God wants a pathetic number of people so he can show his power. And we can imagine, can't we, as ni- another 9,700 people trudge home, that there is much trembling. But I think this would urge us, do not tremble, because God's power is made perfect in weakness. And the proof of that comes next time when we have this great victory. But the point is, it is God who saves. It is God whose strength saves. And as we finish, I think this warns us of two things at St. Stephen's, two, two different dangers we should face up for. We have been through some incredibly tough times, haven't we, the last year and even beyond. And yet we are still standing. If anything, we, we, we're getting slightly bigger and stronger. And it would be easy to think, well, that's because we've got a great leader or we've got a great vestry or we have a great heritage of Bible teaching or we're very courageous or very sacrificial. And all of those things are true, I think. But that's not the reason St. Stephen's is strong if we're strong. If we're strong, it's because God has been gracious to us. If we're united, it's because God has given us the love to love one another. And the danger is that we are tempted to pat ourselves on the back and think we did it. And the same could be true on an individual level. If our Christian lives are going well, if our family is on fire for the Lord Jesus, it would be easy to pat ourselves on the back and think it's because I've been disciplined. I've done family devotions. I'm more spiritual. Now, all of those things are good things, but if our Christian lives are going well, it's because God has strengthened us. And there is a great danger when things go well that we pat ourselves on the back and say, my strength saved me. And we must be careful. And the antidote is to give thanks to God, to acknowledge we're nothing but by him. But the other danger, and I think it's just as much a danger, is to look at our smallness and to tremble, to become paralyzed. We are a church in a, in a very, very small diocese. I, I, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to check. Maybe the smallest diocese in the world. I don't know. But we've very few financial resources. And we're a church that has many blessings, but we are, don't have much money. We don't have any buildings. Uh, we're short of uh, some leaders in one or two areas. Uh, it, 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 it's tough. We're small. And uh, maybe on an individual level, you feel small and weak. You're in an office where everyone's not a Christian, and you feel pretty pathetic. And the danger is we despair, and we think we can do nothing. Or we think if only we had some more, if we had some money, 
if we had a, a great celebrity on our side, if we, we had some property. But no, this says to us we have everything we need because we have the Lord. If somebody phoned the office tomorrow morning and, and said, I want to give $10 million to St. Stephen's. If uh, the, a budding Billy Graham phoned up and said, I want to come and join you and, and use uh, your church as a base, use St. Stephen's as a base for my evangelistic efforts, we'd be no stronger tomorrow than we are today because the victory is the Lord's. It is God's strength that will deliver us. And in fact, if that were to happen, we may well be weaker because we'd look at our bank balance or we'd look at the great talent and we'd think, well, we can do it ourselves. We don't need to rely on God. And that's a danger. The Apostle Paul was one of the greatest thinkers in the Christian world, one of the bravest church leaders. He was given a weakness that uh, dehabilitated him. We don't know what it is. And he pleaded, take it away from me. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And the Apostle Paul knew when he was weak, he was strong because he had to rely on God. And that is God's pattern. Think when the Lord God himself looked most weak. Surely, as his son hung on a cross, dying, looked utterly pathetic, looked like God was defeated. And yet in that moment of weakness, God's power was shown as the devil was defeated, death was destroyed, sins were wiped away. Well, friends, if you feel strong, don't boast. Thank the Lord for strengthening you. But if you feel weak, if you feel wimpish like Gideon, don't fret. Don't test him. Don't doubt. Because we can trust our God. He will do as he says. He's a promise keeper. And as we look out and see many troubles, many enemies, don't tremble. Don't panic. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are truthful and we can trust every word that comes from your mouth. Thank you that you too are kind with us, that you know that we do doubt. And we pray that those who maybe are doubting this morning would come to you and have their doubts answered. We pray, reassure us uh, in a moment through the supper that we would be reassured of your goodness and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. But help us not to be overconfident. We, we pray, spare us from ever patting ourselves on the back and thinking we have done it, but rather to know that we are weak and you are strong, and so to rely on your strength. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.